Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 95. This is the word of God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his, his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are, also, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day of Ma- at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for this psalm, for all the psalms, for your clear teaching to us about what worship is, what it's to look like, how we're to do it, um, and to speak not only to the outward actions, but to the deepest parts of our heart. And I pray this morning as we look at it, that you will touch each of us and open each of our eyes and hearts uh, about worship and how we can grow in this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Today I'm here to teach you about your most cherished activity. Do you have it in your mind? I want you to think about your favorite thing to do. You know, the one that brings you the most joy. It's that thing that comes most naturally. Uh, You don't even have to try for this activity. In fact, when you stop trying to do anything, you daydream about it. What am I talking about? It's worship. Now today, more specifically, we will take a look at a worship song in the Bible, Psalm 95, we've just heard, and we'll consider how and why we are to worship God together with music and songs. But I feel this morning we can't start there. We bring too many assumptions, too many stigmas about church worship. We need a bigger, more expansive, more complete understanding of worship. So I'd like to spend a few minutes thinking about worship together before we dive into Psalm 95. What is worship? Well, it's a verb, so it's an action. One resource defines worship like this, an attitude and activity designed to recognize and describe the worth of a person. An attitude and activity designed to recognize and describe the worth of a person. And it's not hard, is it? To engage your entire being, your mind, your emotions, your desires, your time, your energy, to ascribe ultimate value to things and to people 
especially to one person, and that is to yourself, of course. You see, we were created in the beginning to worship one person who is worthy, God our creator. But then Satan came along, the serpent, and tempted Adam and Eve, and for the first time in human history, humans worshipped themselves rather than God. To engage in activity designed to recognize their own worth instead of God's worth. They caved, and so do we, every day. Because even we 44-year-olds are like two-year-olds at heart. The center of the universe feels like the right place for me. Now, it looks ugly when we see others fighting for this treasured, coveted spot, but it feels oh so beautiful when we elbow somebody out of the way and we take that place for ourselves. We stand there. What do we call that action? We call that sin. And if we look at a few of the sins that are common to us, I think you'll see this idea of worship embedded in every single one. Worship of created things, of people, and of self. Stealing something that belongs to someone else for me to have. Committing adultery with someone else's spouse for my pleasure. Lusting after another man or woman who should be yours. Envying what someone else has. Why do they get that thing that character trait, or that blessing. How can the person at the center of the universe not have that? Hatred, and even its most extreme form, murder, is when our wills have become so crossed that taking away your life is a small price to pay to protect my rights. Is it an accident that the first two Commandments in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything to bow down to them and serve them. I hope that I've convinced you that you were designed to worship, and you do it easily every day. But tragically, we do not easily and naturally worship God above all other gods and other people, most notably ourselves. While worship comes automatically for us, it's misdirected. Because as Tim Keller has said, worshiping God is an instinct that's gone awry. As a result, it must be learned. But as it's learned, it feels utterly natural. He defines worship as an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. And he adds, everyone is shaped by the worth of something. What is shaping you? What is your most precious? Your life will either be shaped by finding the highest value and worth and preciousness in God or by finding the highest value, worth, and preciousness in other people and things and yourself. Idolatry is when you are willing to rebel against God, to reject him, to dethrone him because there is something more precious to you. The author 
of this song, Psalm 95, uses a perfect harmony of worship to God and warning against that kind of rebellion. The psalm calls us to worship the only person who deserves it and reminds us why God deserves our worship. And it follows the same arc that our weekly worship here at Orchard takes every Sunday. I love this. The psalm starts by calling us to get up on our feet and sing and shout about how great God is. And then it calls us to kneel and lay face down in humility because of how great God is. And finally, Psalm 95 also teaches and warns us sharply, as we'll see, about what will happen to us if we do not ascribe ultimate value to God. As you open Psalm 95 with me, I want you to walk away with answers to three life-altering and eternity-altering questions today. How should I worship God? Why should I worship God? And what will happen if I don't worship God? Because you will walk out of here in this room and will spend the rest of your life choosing to worship someone. And I'm convinced that you'll have the most freeing, joyful, satisfying, stable, safe, rich, right, and real life. Worshiping the God that is sung about in this song. So let's look at point number one. How should we worship God? Letter A, rise up and joyfully celebrate. Let's read verses one and two again. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The first thing we see immediately are two calls to worship. Oh, come. And we'll see a third in verse six. And note that it's always in the plural here. Let us is used twice, not let me. So the context for the song is corporate or gathered worship. Multiple people gathering together to sing. We need this. It is not enough to worship God alone. Each week we gather together and sing together. And it's different than singing alone. We hear prayers from multiple men and it's different than praying alone. We listen to sermons together and we discuss it afterward. And even that is different than listening alone. Hebrews 10.25 commands the New Testament Christian, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. When I first read these two verses, I pictured the psalmist calling us, oh, come and sing. But I love what the ESV study Bible says. The members of the congregation singing these verses invite one another to the great privilege of worshiping the Lord. We should call each other to come. Let us make a joyful noise. Now, Joyful noise, what does that mean? I've often heard it as an encouragement to sing it out, even if you can't sing in tune. And uh, that counts as a noise, whatever it is you're making. The NIV translates it, shout aloud. The New Living Translation, uh, shout joyfully. And the message paraphrases, shout praises, raise the roof, lifting the rafters. 
In Tim and Kathy Keller's superb devotional that's called The Songs of Jesus, which walks through every psalm, they have this comment on the joyful noise in Psalm 95. Worshiping is not always quiet and decorous. It can entail shouting, praising, leaping to our feet, singing our hearts out, when the love of the immeasurably great and transcendent God of the universe becomes real to us, the joy should be uncontainable. You don't have to force people to their feet or to shout when their favorite sports team scores, do you? It just erupts out of them. So ask yourself, is there any of that? Any joy in the sounds, and more importantly, in the heart, your heart, when you sing to the Lord? Or are you bored? Is it dull? Is it disconnected from the deepest parts of you? Have you ever said, I'm just not really into singing with other believers? Well, the psalmist calls you to drop your excuses and to grab each other and say, Come on, get excited, get up out of your seats and cheer, dig deep, sing out, let's go. We are singing to God, the rock of our salvation. John MacArthur notes that this psalm may have been composed by David, as he's mentioned in Hebrews 4.7, uh, quoting this. And it may have been for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And during that feast, the people of Israel lived in booths, remembering God's provisions for them in the wilderness. So this metaphor for God as the rock of our salvation was especially appropriate, referring to the water that came from the rock in the wilderness. And verse 2 says, our overwhelming attitude, belief, and yes, even feeling, should be thanksgiving and joy. I don't have reasons to be thankful or happy right now, you say. My circumstances are hard and painful. I believe you. But I find it very instructive that while this song gives us reasons to come with thanksgiving and joy, there isn't a single reason given that says we should because he's made your circumstances light, easy, and fun. And maybe, just maybe, the reality of our sorrows should drive us to even more thanksgiving and more joy as we come into his presence. Not less. The soldier returning to his wife is more thankful and joyful to feel her arms wrapped around his neck and her voice in his ears saying, I love you because of the excruciating circumstances he's experienced. They don't make him less so. Think for a minute of the deepest times of real worship to God through music that you have experienced in church. Now look at the circumstances that happened right before that beautiful praise just overflowed from your heart. Were you on a vacation right before? Were you relaxing on a beach? Was everything perfect and easy? Or have your deepest moments of worship come when you most desperately needed God's steadfast, loving kindness and presence? And you were overwhelmed to see that he was better than you ever imagined or had known. Your heart looked at some impossible mess to sort out. And as you stood in church on Sunday, surrounded by fellow strugglers, 
You sang a song of praise and you looked again at God who is faithful and loves you and is great and wonderful. And it meant more because your self-sufficiency was broken. You sang, out of the depths I cry to you. You sang, I need thee every hour. And your Savior was more precious to you then than anything else in the world. I personally think, and some of you remember, of the Sunday morning here at Orchard, the week after little Lydia Williamson was suddenly and painfully taken from us at a very young age. I'd like to remind you that the music was not more professional that morning. The song selection wasn't especially great. Our voices weren't suddenly hitting all of the right notes and the right pitches. But our worship of God was more real and more powerful, wasn't it? The darkness should make you love the light even more. Ulrich Leopold, a Jew and Christian in Germany in the 1930s, so doubly at risk, wrote a seven-volume commentary on the Bible. And in that, he wrote this amazing one-liner about worship. Tepid praise defeats its own purpose. Tepid praise defeats its own purpose. He continues, in the Old Testament, temple worship may often have been characterized by a vigor and forcefulness that we are strangers to. And our style here at Orchard may not be the same as ancient Jews or even as modern black gospel churches, but we can sing with the vigor and forcefulness of our convictions. Let us sing, we read twice. Let us make a joyful noise twice with songs of praise. Hearing music is powerful and good and it should be done, but it's not enough to use your ears, brother or sister. God wants you to use your voice and your heart. Something different happens within your heart when you sing out the words, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free. Oh, is free indeed, and I hope you're hearing the music in your head right now, and you just want to start singing, Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. And your opportunity is coming in a few minutes, and I hope you take advantage of it, because God is giving you another chance to enjoy the privilege of making a joyful noise of thanksgiving to him. We see in the next bit here another attitude and another posture that are were needed when we worship God. Kneel down and humbly revere. Letter B in verse 6. Let's read verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's the same call again. O come. Doesn't that have a wonderful pleading tone? Oh, won't you please come? 
And we see three new words, new postures in this call. Here they are. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. The message paraphrases it. So come, let us worship. Bow before him on your knees before God who made us. The Kellers say this, in contrast to the exuberance of the first five verses, which fits with the postures of standing or even dancing, each of the three verbs in verse six have to do with getting low before God. Since the Hebrew word for worship here literally means to prostrate oneself, we are to bow reverently, to kneel humbly before God, admitting our sinfulness and dependence. While adoration comes from seeing a God of glory, submission comes from seeing a God of grace, who is our covenant God who redeemed us and brought us as sheep into his fold, as we'll see in verse 7. End quote. We have looked at his greatness, and now instead of being puffed up with our own importance, we're making demands of the Lord. Have you had that attitude as you go to him? As if you were the center of the universe. Instead, we have yielded the center of the universe back to our great king. And we worship. We bow down. We kneel. Do you struggle with being boastful? Or flippant? Casual? Unimpressed? Or dismissive when you come to God? How easy it is to do that when we sing to him and live for him. Not only did he make the incredible universe, but the psalmist also points out and reminds us that we would not exist if he had not made us. He is our maker. And acknowledging this is not only good, it's also a huge relief. Trying to deserve the role of center of the universe is an exhausting and demoralizing thing. When we give it back to God and we humbly lie down on our face and worship him, the pressure is off. That is a role that we can handle. So we see the songwriter of Psalm 95 has shown us how to worship God through music and singing by rising up and joyfully celebrating and by kneeling down in humility. But he also tells us why we should worship God through music and singing. First, because he's incomparably great, as we'll see in verses 3 through 5. And second, because he is our God and we are his people in the first half of verse 7. So number two in your outline, why should we worship God? Letter A, he is incomparably great. Let's read verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. For the Lord. Okay, all that praise, excitement, thanksgiving, that joyful noise. Why? In recognition of God's greatness. Towering with infinite height over any so-called little G gods. We proclaim it not to make it true but because it is true and deserves our praise. When we say God is great, we can't help but have some kind of mental 
picture, right? When I tell you, like this verse says, that God is a great king above all gods, there's some picture, there's some idea, there's, there's some image in your mind. And I want to tell you, no matter what that image is, no matter how great that image is, it's too small. Listen to some verses to convince you of that. Job 36, 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. The fact that we can't fully picture or grasp all that God is shouldn't frustrate us, but leave us more thankful and in awe. The gods that humans imagine and create are always too small. The New Bible Commentary gives us extra insight into the contrast that this psalmist uses in verses 3 through 5. It says, In pagan thought, the depths were ruled by Molech, the mountain peaks by Baal, and the sea by Tiamat, these three gods. But in the Bible, all is in his hand and is his by right of creation. That said, we do want our mental picture to be as expansive and big as possible to enjoy and marvel at the grandiose things that we can say of him that are mind-blowing but true. So listen to this. The deepest point that humans have reached into the Earth's crust is the Kola Superdeep Borehole in Russia. This borehole reached a depth of about 40,230 feet below the Earth's surface. That's seven and a half miles deep. That's more than running a 10K straight down. And if you imagine a classroom globe that represents the Earth, the whole of the Earth's crust would be just the layer of varnish on the globe. Yet these are in his hand, like a handful of dirt. And not only that, in that same hand are the heights of the mountains. Think how much more awesome these two extremes were in the minds of ancient Jews. In the same hand, he's holding the depths of the earth, the height of the mountains. Many years ago, author C.S. Lewis helped me regain some of the much-deserved wonder that all humans felt for the scale of life on our planet until around 100 years ago. Listen to these quotes from his book, Surprised by Joy. The deadly power of rushing about wherever I pleased had not been given me. I measured distances by the standard of men, man walking on his two feet, not by the standard of the internal combustion engine. I had not been allowed to deflower the very idea of distance. The truest and most horrible claim made for modern transport is that it annihilates space. It does. It annihilates one of the most glorious gifts we have been given, It is a vile inflation, which lowers the value of distance so that a modern boy travels a hundred miles with less sense of liberation and pilgrimage and adventure 
than his grandfather got from traveling 10. Like the psalmist, we need to meditate on the wonders of the universe, its scale, its beauty, its complexity, and at least inch our way closer and understand slightly more the incomparable greatness of the God who created it all and rules over it, even though we may merely scratch the surface. So why should we worship God? Because he is incomparably powerful and great. But also letter B, because he is our God and we are his people. You see, it's not enough that God is great. If God was all-powerful but was not also all-good, and he didn't love us at all. He'd be like a cruel bully, only to be feared. On the other hand, if he was all-good and loved us but he wasn't powerful, he'd be like a, a sweet old lady with no ability to do wondrous works. But God is all-powerful, as we've just reflected. And in the first part of verse 7, we see that we belong to him, and he loves to care for us. Let's read the first half of verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. He is our God, and we are the people that live like sheep in his pasture. There's food, and peace, and care, and a special wall of security for us. I love that the Jews sang this song thinking of God as their shepherd. And then hundreds of years later, God would come and take on flesh, the incarnation, in the person of Jesus, who was both God and man. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus picks up the same analogy. And in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And a few verses later, he adds, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I had the privilege of teaching on that passage in John back in 2019, and I'd like to reshare an analogy from that sermon that can help us understand in modern terms what Jesus has done for us, since this idea of shepherding can feel a bit distant to most of us. This is what I want you to do. Picture yourself as a young child, maybe three or four years old. You're very needy, you're entirely dependent, And you're prone to wander off and to self-inflicted pain. Jesus is saying, I am the good daycare worker. Oh, please, you say this is embarrassing. Don't use that analogy. Well, as Kostenberger points out, in Jesus' day, shepherds were regarded as vulgar. The members of the lower class, they couldn't even testify in a court case. So maybe Jesus' listeners actually felt even more embarrassed than you, with my analogy. Jesus is not the daycare worker who doesn't care about you and the other children, who's just there to collect a paycheck. No, he knows every child by name because he knows them. He knows your name, and when you hear his voice calling to you, you run 
Because you know him and trust him. And you know that he takes good care of you. He feeds you when you're hungry. He gives you medicine and band-aids when you're hurt. And when a kidnapper sneaks into the courtyard, whose only intent is to hurt you or the other kids, he rushes forward and takes them down. The good daycare worker. How good is Jesus to the little children, the lambs in his care? He adopts them for life, forever. So they actually belong to him permanently. Millions of spiritual children are adopted away from their abusive father, Satan, who is actively seeking to harm and to destroy his children. And even when we blindly walk in front of oncoming traffic, he stands in front and absorbs the full impact for us, giving up his own life that we might live. But then he spontaneously takes up his life again because the father told him to. God takes us in, makes us part of his actual family with all the benefits, 24-hour love, provision, and heartfelt care. He cares for our future, and he prepares us for a dream job that we'll get to do for eternity, showering us with an inheritance of such unfathomable magnitude that we can't comprehend it, and we could never spend it, even if we tried. An abundant life. So why should we sing to and worship God? Because he's incomparably great and he is our God. We are his people. We want desperately to be treasured, don't we? And the best news for you ever is that you are treasured forever by the most perfect, powerful, wonderful person. No mere human, but by God, the people and the things you find yourself longing for, daydreaming about, will let you down. They lie to you, telling you they are worth ultimate worship, but they aren't. So while we can't understand everything that's going on in the world, in our world, in our life, we do know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what if we hear his voice today and we reject what he tells us? What if we don't love God? What if we refuse to be one of his people? Well, terrifyingly, God will call and call and call to you, and then he will let you reject him. But he wants you to know what happens if you do that. So after singing us and we so far in this song, God himself steps in starting in the second half of verse 7 through to the end to personally warn us of what happens if we don't worship him. Point number three in your outlines, what happens if we don't worship God? Start reading in the second half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The wrath of God comes to those who harden their hearts when they hear his voice. So the first question you should ask yourself is this. Am I hearing his voice today. It says, 
today if you hear his voice? And the answer is that if you wonder and question in your mind, if there's a tug inside of your heart to ask that question, the answer is yes, he is calling to you. That is his voice. And you have two options. Soften your heart and pursue and follow him as a disciple or harden your heart as the nation of Israel did at Meribah. Meribah means quarreling or rebellion. And Massa means testing. This incident here spoken of occurs in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And it's a classic record of a lack of trust. We should remember, however, that the circumstance at Meribah was dire. Over a million people and all their animals had no water. This is a real crisis. This is not a fake crisis. When you and I test or rebel against the Lord due to a lack of trust, it will be because we have a real crisis. We have a situation that will feel very dire. What matters in that crisis is how we view ourselves and God. Do we trust him? That is what the Jews got wrong. Faced with an apparently waterless valley, they turned from trust to doubt. And we will too, if we don't heed the warning here. As verse 9 tells us, they heard his voice. They saw the works. There's no shortage of proof from God about who he is in history or in nature. He is everywhere. But they put him to the test as if they were in charge. They were God. And his character and power were in doubt. Maybe not quite going to measure up this time. Maybe not worthy of being followed and listened to. Note the contrast for this heart attitude compared to how our psalm started off. There's no cheering. There's no joy. No bowing down, kneeling, or ascribing worth. No, the little g-gods are now seeing themselves as above the one great God. In verses 10 and 11, God tells us, For 40 years I loathed that generation, and in the end swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What does this mean? Israel doubted that God would take care of them at Meribah. But it isn't until much, much later, many years later, in Numbers 14, after the people listened to the report of the ten faithless spies and refused to enter the promised land, that the Lord swore, as I live, that not one of those who grumbled in disbelief shall come into the land. The 40 days of spying would be yielding 40 years of wandering, and those who refuse in unbelief to obey God's voice will be removed from the people. And there would be a delay in the people carrying out their calling to occupy the land. The psalm takes the incident at Meribah and Massa as an early installment of this persistent unbelief, which culminated in refusal to enter the land. John MacArthur draws the lesson out. Their wanderings in the desert were the outworking of straying hearts. So what does God want us to learn from this recounting of Israel at Meribah so long ago and their eventual judgment? God is answering the important question, what will happen to me if I refuse to worship God? He is personally teaching you that if you refuse to believe in him and to ascribe the highest worth in your life to him, 
then you will not enter his rest. You will instead enter his wrath. And God wants to make this extremely clear to you and me. Those of us living in the church age today. So the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, which takes the form of a sermon to the church, spends two whole chapters, chapters three and four, expanding on and applying these very ideas to us. And the warning explodes to life. It's directed to us. Here are a few select verses from these chapters. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews 4, 1, 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard, it didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At the beginning of my message, I told you that you were created to worship. It's easy for you to do. And that I wanted you to walk away with answers to three life-altering, eternity-altering questions today. How should I worship God? Why should I worship God? And what will happen if I don't worship God? Again, you will walk out of this room and will spend the rest of your life choosing to worship someone, something. And I am convinced that you will have the most freeing, joyful, satisfying, stable, safe, rich, right, and real life, worshiping the God sung about in this song. Rise up and sing to God the rock of your salvation with joyful overflows of praise. Ascribe worth and ultimate value to the only one deserving And kneel before your God in humble reverence. Why? For he's incomparably great. And you are his. You are called by name into his family, his flock, forever. And even if you spend a lifetime of doing this, as Robert Layton said in 1853, all this is far below him in his mercies. What are our lame phrases in comparison to his love. Nothing and less than nothing, but love will stammer rather than be silent. But if you have not called out to Jesus for his free forgiveness and eternal life, then today, if you hear his voice calling you to your knees, 
calling you to his side, I beg of you. Do not harden your heart. Come today, today, and be saved forever. Christian, this morning, you have done this. You belong to God. Your soul is safe, and yet you're often very troubled at the circumstances in your life, troubled at your own heart and mind. And Joseph Carroll would remind you today of Mary and of Martha. That is the difference, he says. You can be busy and not be troubled, or you cannot be busy and be very troubled. It all depends on whether Christ is central in your life. So come to the Lord's table every week. Come to this preaching service every week. And go to him as often as you like. You're all on the unlimited plan. And worship him. Place him back in the center of your universe where he belongs. And enjoy being part of the jubilant throng around him, singing his praises. I'd like to invite us all, stand right now if you would, please. Stand with me. And let's do that now. Let's sing together. Let's worship him. And pray this devotional prayer with me that I'm borrowing from another preacher as our musicians come back up. Bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, I confess the blindness of my understanding and the stubbornness of my will the foolishness of my thought life and the addiction of my heart to things of this world. False and full of sin I am and thou art full of truth and grace. Without that grace, I'm lost. I praise you that in Christ your grace abounds to me. Lord, you are eternal, ever-present, perfect in knowledge and wisdom, absolute in power, spotless in your purity, completely just and righteous, beautiful in your glory. You are all this, yet my praise falls so short of your reality that I am ashamed. Accept my praise through the merits of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.